0: Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we'll start reading verse 26. This continues the last day of Jesus on this earth before he was killed. Last week and the week before, we looked at the trial, the arrest and the trial of Jesus. So on about Thursday night of his week that he died, he was arrested, betrayed, arrested, uh, hauled away to a kangaroo court, which pretended to uh, care about justice, but actually had an agenda. And in a miscarriage of justice, the crowd persuaded the authorities to give them what they wanted, which was an execution of Jesus. And so the sentence has been passed by Pilate that Jesus would be killed, though Pilate has already declared him innocent. And so now we'll begin reading when Jesus, as a condemned criminal, uh, is led away to be crucified. In verse 26, we'll read down to verse 49. Now as they led him away, they lay hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from, country, from the country. And on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood." What would be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. When they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth. Until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, "Certainly this was a righteous man." And the whole crowd who came together to that sight, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the woman who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So this is it. This is the end of Jesus' life. The darkest moment on earth. Darkest moment that ever was and ever will be. The one time in the entire history of the world that a truly innocent person suffered. People ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, they only happen to bad, oh, bad things, only happen to a good person one time, right here. There's only one good person, and this is him suffering. So, most of the time when people think about Jesus, they think about modeling their life after Jesus. What would Jesus do? All right? We've heard the phrase WWJD, the bracelets. And of course, Jesus is the perfect model. He's the perfect example. But this passage is not about following Jesus this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus rising above everyone else as the only and unique and true savior. It's not be like Jesus. It's you are not Jesus and this is who he is. So we look at this passage, we're going to see Jesus. See, you don't really know someone until you see them under stress. That's when you know somebody. When you see someone stressed to the point of breaking How do they react? What are their behaviors when they can't take it anymore? That's where you see true character come out. And so we see Jesus. Who was Jesus really when he didn't have any friends? When he didn't have anything? When he was being oppressed and beaten and tortured? What came out of his mouth then? Sure, when he was in front of 5,000 people preaching, he said nice things. But what about now? And so we see the true Jesus and the true greatness of Jesus when he dies. Everything Jesus had come to earth to do culminates in this passage. This was the point of his arrival. And we see three things here. Physical suffering, the public humiliation, and the penalty of sin. All about Jesus. Now there are other characters, but all the other characters serve as sort of foils to show who Jesus is. How would Jesus react to this person, to that person, to this situation? And so the character of Jesus is revealed in different situations and under extreme stress. So look first at the physical suffering. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, uh, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. It was tradition that the the accused would carry the beams or the cross beam on their shoulder. You can imagine how heavy that'd be, 50 to 100 pounds. And they would carry it as sort of a mark of shame up the hill to where they'd be crucified. Why did they have this man carry it for Jesus? Because Jesus had already been beaten so badly that he couldn't carry it. Now, remember who Jesus was as a man. He was about 30 years old and he was a carpenter. In other words, his whole life was literally about carrying beams around. He walked everywhere. He was a physical laborer. He was in the prime of his life. We know he ate healthy. We know he exercised. And yet he's been beaten so badly he can't carry his own cross. That's why this is being told to us. His beating was done with a cat of nine tails, which had leather strips with bits of bone or metal in them. And as they would hit Jesus, as they would hit the accused, this is not just Jesus, it was all people who had been crucified, the meadow and the bone would grab onto the flesh and rip it open, exposing organs sometimes. And you imagine the blood loss. This is after Jesus has already been suffering psychologically. Remember, he was in the garden praying that he wouldn't die, facing the burden of the entire world, sweating drops of blood, psychologically weakened. Now he's been beaten, so he's physically weakened. So Simon is chosen. Now, it's interesting who this man Simon was. Why is he in the story? Imagine the picture. There's a crowd. There's three prisoners being led to be crucified. One is the most popular man in Israel, Jesus. He stumbles. He can't carry the cross. The Roman soldiers who couldn't care less about anybody, they're foreigners who have come to oppress the nation to keep order. They realize Jesus can't do it. He may die at the spot. So they look around to grab someone to help him. And who do they pick? Who do you usually pick? The guy who stands out. So they pick Simon. Now, Simon was a Cyrenian. That's modern-day Libya, North Africa. And it says he was coming in from the country. In other words, he looked different. He was black. He wore different clothes. He was a foreigner. And so the Roman says, you're different from everybody. No one really cares about you, right? You come bear the cross for a criminal. A shameful act. You can imagine the blood on the cross having to walk out, it may appear that you're the criminal. So they pick the one person that would be different from everyone else and cause a less amount of problems. Now, what's happening? This sounds terrible, doesn't it? Unless you know who Jesus is. If you were there and you saw Jesus stumble, what would you do? Wouldn't you want to help? Simon has been chosen by God to be in this spot at this time. So he has the privilege of carrying Jesus' cross. This is not a punishment for Simon. The Romans thought it was a punishment. You see the theme? The Romans try to punish and God uses it to bless, just like Jesus. So they pick out Simon in order to basically punish him for being an outsider, to being a foreigner, for looking different. And God says, you get to carry Jesus' cross. And everyone for the next thousands and thousands of years will know your name as the man who walked behind Jesus bearing his cross. What a privilege. What a blessing. And in Mark, when they tell the story, they say, Simon the Cyrenian, father of Rufus and Alexander. Now, who's Rufus and Alexander? How did Mark know about them? Paul mentions Rufus in Romans 16. In other words, this man's sons were part of the church. They grew up and became part of the believers. They were known by name. Can you imagine Simon telling the story to his kids? The blessing that they received by knowing. It's not just sort of a third-hand story. Simon says, I was there. I wasn't with the mockers. I was carrying the cross. So when God says, let someone suffer, he makes it into a blessing. And that's what Christianity has to be seen as. The world oppresses and God blesses. Through the oppression. He says to the mourning women, now these women weren't his followers, so the great multitude of people followed. These were sort of uh, pious, devout women in Israel who would follow young men who were being crucified to lament the fact that they were dying. To die a young man was a terrible thing, still is a terrible thing. To be crucified as a young Jewish man was terrible. No more kids no more family, to be, see, this is oppression, right? The Romans invaded and were now killing the people. The government authorities were hauling off young men to be killed. And so these women would follow them and mourn and lament and say it's terrible that he's been taken in the prime of his life. But Jesus says, in his moment when he's so weakened and beaten that he can't even carry his own cross, who's he thinking of? In the one time in his life when it was perfectly legitimate for him to be thinking about himself. He's the one who's being beaten. He's the one who's bleeding out. And yet he turns to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. See who Jesus is? Because you know what was going to happen to these women and their children? In about 30 or 40 years after this event, Rome would come back. There was an uprising about 30 years later and Rome came down with an army to destroy everyone and they surrounded Jerusalem and these women and their children were walled up in Jerusalem. 500 Jews were crucified every day. They chopped down every tree in the area. These women were killed. Their children were killed. They were starved out and the entire city of Jerusalem was destroyed. They literally wouldn't leave a stone on top of another. They said about 1.1 million people died. So Jesus says, you think this is bad, you watching me die, wait till it comes for you. Now, what's interesting is that many Christians escaped that because of this warning and because they were persecuted, they weren't in Jerusalem and they lived. So what Jesus is saying is, if they'll do this to me, a green tree with support from the people, and the Roman government even supported him, saying he was innocent, imagine what they'll do to you. Jesus is saying, you've got problems coming. He's trying to warn them. He's reaching out to people and saying, take heed. All while he is stumbling under oppression, bleeding out. And then what happens? He's crucified. Now, crucifixion, we can't imagine it. Until you see it, you can't imagine it. No movie can do any justice to it. It's horrific. It was the most horrific way to die. It was tortured. It was humiliation. You were you weren't see, when we think of torture, we think of some of a dungeon and a man strapped to a, a chair or a table. This was torture in front of everybody. Lifted up so all your friends and your family could watch, so your kids could see you. It was so embarrassing that it was not spoken of. In Roman circles, there's a, a poet named Juvenal who was critiquing some plays. And he said these plays, these famous plays that he went and saw, he said they're terrible. There was a man named L'Oriolus who was crucified. And in the play, another man mimics that. And Juvenal says, what if I can never cite any example so foul and shameful that there's not something worse behind? The nimble Lentilus acted famously the part of L'Oriolus. And on the stage, he sort of mimics being crucified which embarrassed this quote poet so much. He said, deserving in my judgment to be really and truly crucified. Crucifixion was so shameful that to mimic it was embarrassing. Romans didn't mimic that. That was for the Jews. That was for the criminals. And that was for Jesus. Jesus, the creator, perfectly good, perfectly loving, in his last moments reaching out to people, is hung on a cross. C.S. Lewis puts into context. God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy, superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. He creates the universe. Already foreseeing, or should we say seeing, there are no tenses in God, the buzzing clouds of flies above the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the messial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation as the body droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it time after time, for breath's sake, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Here in his love. You see, God created the tree that he would be crucified on. He nurtured the people who would crucify him. He reached out to the people who would kill him, knowing the whole time that he would suffer for their sakes. So who is Jesus? He's the one who knowingly, willingly was crucified. The worst death. Not a public execution. Public torture. And look what he says while he's being nailed, literally nailed to a cross. Spikes driven through his hands and feet. Lifted up so that he's hanging by them. He says, looking at the soldiers, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. These soldiers, they didn't know what they were doing. I imagine if the soldiers actually knew anything, they wouldn't have done it. They were superstitious people. They would have said, wait a minute, he might be a prophet. He might be an angel. He might be some, I'm not going to They were nailing God to a tree. An act so horrendous that all of heaven must have shuddered at it. And Jesus said, they don't know what they're doing, so forgive them. Can you imagine that? As someone tortures you, as they cut you open, as they stretch your body out, you say, they don't know what they're doing. Let them go for this one. Don't make them pay for this one. That's who Jesus is in the very moment when he's being tortured the most. He forgives the soldiers. But you see, the physical suffering was only part of it. As many of us know, physical suffering can often be endured. It's the psychological suffering that can't be. You've heard some people say, I'd rather take a beating than go up in front of these people. I'd rather physically suffer than be humiliated. But with Jesus, it was both. So he physically suffered, but he was also publicly humiliated. Notice how the Bible points out the humiliation of the people. And the people stood looking on, just watching, casually, just standing there, looking at him as he suffers. But that's not enough. And even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. They mocked him. They laughed at him. They publicly demeaned him. We talked about this last week. Notice how prominent the idea of mocking is in the suffering of Jesus. It's to show that he didn't just suffer physically while everybody was sort of around him, sort of encouraging him. He suffered while they laughed at him, while they demeaned him, while they humiliated him. The leaders, the religious leaders, the respectable, pious churchgoers, mock him, embarrassing him. You see, we think Jesus wasn't embarrassed, right? We think God can't be embarrassed. Jesus was embarrassed. He was was naked on a cross. He was ashamed. He was humiliated. You've been embarrassed, haven't you? Jesus was embarrassed. And the people laughed at him, mocked him. And the soldiers said, we can do that too. So the soldiers mocked him, laughed at him saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you're so special, why are you on a cross? Then they put a sign over his head, this is the king of the Jews. Can you imagine that? This is the king of the Jews, crucified. What a fool. What an idiot. What a laughable excuse for a man. Everybody gather around and laugh at Jesus. That's what's happening. Even the criminals felt they were better than Jesus. This is how humiliated Jesus is. That the criminals next to him, who were put on either side of him to show that he was nobody special, he didn't get his own crucifixion. He got crucified with other people. Even they said, if you were the Christ, save yourself and us. He was so low that other crucifixion victims felt better than him. They were not as humiliated as Jesus. notice how bad that has to be? When the person who's being suffocated to death says, at least we're not Jesus, at least we're only being crucified. So they mocked him. The suffering of Jesus is the rejection of everyone around him. No one stood with Jesus. No one. Not even God. The Father turned away from him and said, Jesus, you're on your own for this one. Jesus cried out, you forsake me? I knew Peter would forsake me. I knew my disciples would. I knew the followers would. I knew the Jews would. I knew the Romans would. But the Father? And so Jesus is left all alone in a way that no one's ever been left alone. Suffering, laughed at. Not a single person came to his defense. Not even God. And so he hangs on the cross, alone, mocked, embarrassed, and does nothing. You see, they laughed at him for doing nothing. That's what the mocking was. But he was saying, every time you laugh at me, that makes it worse. Because what was he doing? He was absorbing their sin. Every mock, every sin was weighing down on him at that moment. And instead of putting an end to it, he bears it for the very people mocking him. The very Roman soldier who's mentioned later, he doesn't do anything. He bears it all. He absorbs the mockery. You see, we think Jesus is helpless. He's the least helpless man that was ever on this earth. Is he God? Then what's keeping him on the cross? The nails? Come on. Nails are going to keep the creator on the cross? He's on the cross because he wants to be there. They're laughing at him, saying, you can't come down. And he's thinking to himself, I don't want to come down. So every time you laugh at me, it's okay. That's why I'm here. He was on the cross because they were laughing at us. He stayed on the cross so they wouldn't have to pay for their sins. Edgar Schein, as a sociologist, says, here's what people fear the most. Losing power or position. Appearing incompetent, experiencing pain, losing their identity, and being alone. Those are the greatest fears of people. That's why they don't want to change. That's why they don't want new stuff to come along. That's why they like their routines and rituals, right? We we don't like change, do we? Because it affects one of these things. And yet all of these things come together for Jesus at the same moment. Losing power, appearing incompetent, experiencing pain, losing their identity, and being alone the same time in a way that none of us will ever experience. Crucifixion is not about us, it's about Jesus, and it shows us who he is. To, to understand this, there's a black theologian named James Cone who looked at Christianity in America and realized it was missing something. And he looked at the cross and he tried to contextualize the cross to this, so we something we could understand. He wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Because he realized that's what the cross was like. We think of it as an execution, an electric chair, a hanging. No, those are nice ways to die. Those are controlled events. He said it was like the lynching tree. He says people reject the cross because it contradicts historical values and expectations. Just as Peter challenged Jesus for saying the Son of Man must suffer, Peter said, far be it from you. This shall not happen to you. But Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. In the course of a few moments, Peter went from being the mouthpiece of God to the tool of Satan. Because he could not connect the vicarious, that means suffering for somebody, the vicarious suffering with God's revelation. Suffering and death were not supposed to happen to the Messiah. He was expected to triumph over evil and not be defeated by it. How could God's revelation be found connected with the worst of deaths, the vilest death, The criminal's death on a tree of shame, like the lynching tree in America, the cross in the time of Jesus was the most barbaric form of execution of the utmost cruelty. The absolute opposite of human value systems. It turned reason upside down. Don't glorify the cross. Don't make it look better. It's worse than we can imagine. Everything you value and think, everything you think God should do, he didn't do. He looked like the worst person that ever lived. Think about the worst person you've ever seen. It's worse for Jesus. And his disciples couldn't even stand to be around it. His own followers said, we can't stand to see this happen. They fled. They couldn't come close. His own followers, the ones who didn't flee, stood at a distance. It was too wicked for them to get close to. But he bears it all with grace, not responding, not defending himself. Why? Jesus came with a purpose, to bear the penalty of sin. You see, he did not come as a model. He did not come as an example. He's not just a martyr who shows us about dying for other people. He came with a specific purpose, which was to bear specific sin. Jesus was on that cross for everybody's failures. And not in just a metaphorical way. They were put by God on him. In verse 44 it says, Now is about the sixth hour there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. That's the middle of the day. The sun was darkened. Why? Because God was dying. Because the Father forsook the Son. What light was there? It's as if the sun itself didn't want to look at Jesus. Nothing good was there. To everyone's eyes, to the Father's own eyes, it was just sin. And darkness covered the earth. Whose sin was it? It was your sin. You put Jesus on the cross. We put Jesus on the cross. Don't put it on the Romans. Don't put it on the Jews. Don't put it on Peter and all those disciples who couldn't do the right thing. It was us. That lie you told, that selfishness you carry, that indifference to people. That's why Jesus was there. And he knew you when he was there. He said, You're so bad 2,000 years from now that I'm dying for you. So who are you? What's your identity? First, you have to realize you're the kind of person that makes Jesus go through this. See, Jesus says, I want you, but to have you, I've got to do this. So who's better than anyone else? This is what we deserve. We are the kind of people, as much as we like to wear nice clothes and talk nicely and be polite to everybody, we're the kind of people that should have been there, should have been forsaken. And God says, you can't bear it. You can't do it, so I'll do it for you. When we can see that we put Jesus on the cross, then we can appreciate Jesus dying for us. You can't appreciate what's happening here unless you identify with it. Unless you can see the connection between you and Jesus. Jesus knew all of eternity. He knew us in this moment. He died for us in this moment. He can see all of us in this moment. He's bearing the sins of the world. And what does he say to the man next to him? While the crushing weight of Hitler's atrocities are put on Jesus, while God looks at Jesus and says, that's a rapist, that's a child molester, that's a murderer, that's a Pharisee, what does Jesus do? He turns to the thief next to him and says, I got you. The thief says, I know I should be here. Jesus, just remember me. I've got nothing to offer. That thief had nothing to offer Jesus, not even comfort. He was suffering too much to comfort Jesus. And Jesus says, it's okay. I got you and everybody else. And he says to the thief, in the moment when Jesus is forsaken by everyone, you'll be with me. Showing us that Jesus is here for everybody. Amen. Amen. He's here for the worst person in the world. You see, God put that thief next to Jesus. Just like Simon was put in that place, this thief was put in this place to show everyone who Jesus saves. He saves the thief. Amen. Copernicus, famous astrolog- uh, astronomer, says, Oh Lord, I cannot ask for faith that you gave to St. Paul. The mercy that you showed to St. Peter, I dare not ask. But the grace that you showed to the dying robber, that Lord showed to me. See, the thief on the cross was there to show you that that's all you need to be. All you need to be is a crucified criminal and Jesus will save you. That's it. In other words, You don't bring anything to Jesus except your sin. Nothing. Alexander McLaren says, one alone was saved upon the cross that none might despair. And only one that none might presume. Don't assume that you're next to Jesus. You're going to be saved by Jesus. There were two thieves on those crosses. One went to hell and one went to heaven. What was the difference between them? Not their social standing, not their financial standing, Not anything about them. They were exactly the same. One said, Jesus saved me, and the other one didn't. Which one are you? Have you said to Jesus, I don't know anything. I don't have anything. I'm nobody. Save me. Or have you said, I'm fine. I can get through this. I'll be okay. I'll work harder. Those are your options. You're no better than those thieves. Not one of us is better than a crucified criminal. We have two options. Turn to Christ or turn away from Christ. And look what happens for that thief. Now it was about the sixth hour. The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. What was this veil? Remember we went through Exodus we talked about the tabernacle? This veil was huge. Imagine a room like this with a veil that goes from floor to ceiling that was as thick as your hand. What did that veil do? That veil said, you can't even look at where God sometimes comes to meet. He just sometimes shows up inside this room. You can't even look in there. From top to bottom, the veil was rent. Who rent it? Who climbed up 12 feet in the air, 30 feet in the air, and tore something that was four inches thick? It was God. See, This is a historical event that said there's no more veil between the good people and the bad people. There's no more veil between the sinner and God himself. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, I've taken every reason that God would keep you out and taken it on myself. And if I've taken every reason, God can't keep you out. God must let you into the holy place. And the veil was torn in half so that you and I could see God, could talk to God, could say to ourselves, there's no reason in the world that God won't talk to me. Every bad attitude, every sin, every failing you've had, no, that's on Jesus. So now it's just you and God. Buddha's last words, strive without ceasing. His very last words, he said, work hard. It's good advice, isn't it? Strive without ceasing, and you will make it. Look at Jesus' last words. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The very last words were, God, you've got it. Not, hey, everybody, work hard. Hey, everybody, come on, follow me. It was, God, you've got it. Now, this is the moment when God wasn't talking to Jesus. When the Father and the Son were not speaking to each other, what is the Son doing? He's saying, I still trust God. I still trust the Father when it doesn't seem like it. Because Jesus knew that every reason for him being forsaken was a reason for us not to be forsaken. And he put it all on God. He said, God, whatever you want to do, not my will but yours. And God's will was that he he would die. But because his last words were surrender, our last words aren't. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh, his flesh, his actual body. It's not a metaphor. It's not a spiritual thing. It's an actual body that, like the, the veil, was torn in half, physically ripped open. As Jesus says, I got nothing, and God killed him. Our way was open. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith. The only hope we have is that this story is true and that it's for us. Amen. Amen. If this didn't happen then why does God listen to us? We've got work to do. We better start getting on it and making sure we're good people because it's all on us. But if the story is true, then it's all on Jesus. And our faith is saying, Jesus, what you did was enough. That's hard sometimes because you sometimes feel like God doesn't listen to you. And so you try harder. And you say, God, I know I've done a lot of bad things, but please listen to me. That's not boldness. That's pride. That's saying, I'll do better next time so you'll listen to me. You have to look at Jesus dying and say, nothing more can be done. Nothing more needs to be done. God punished Jesus for everything you've done. He can't punish you anymore. If he did this to Jesus, it wouldn't be fair that he did it to you as well. So when we put our faith in Christ, all the punishment goes to Christ and all the blessing comes to us. So then we boldly enter into the holy place where God himself is and we walk in with no fear of being kicked out. God would not punish Jesus for no reason. What's the reason? So that we would not be punished. The more Jesus is lifted up, the less we worry. The more we see Jesus punished, the less we fear. The more we realize that Jesus died for us, the more we trust him. Turn from yourself, turn from your sins, turn from your good works and turn to Jesus who died for you. Let's pray.